Hi. How are y'all doing? Everyone enjoy lunch? Catch up with each other? Great. Fantastic. Um, in case you missed it, I'm Melanie Griffith, once again. Uh, I appreciate those of us who are joining online. And a special thanks to our AV services from Van Velkenberg Communications and LiveMedia.ca. We also appreciate the generous sponsorship provided by TD Bank Group. Thank you for helping us to make this event possible, as well as our season sponsor, Canadian Bankers Association, and for its continued support, your continued support. Our club is grateful for the season-long partnership with Canada's Forest Trust, an ESG company planting smart forests to take action on climate change. The Trust's efforts have helped us reduce our carbon footprint this season. And we are thrilled to have Air Canada, our official airline, as a sponsor. We can agree that these are tumultuous times. Whether it's the economy, the environment, technology, or politics, disruption seems to be a common theme. What do these shifts mean for the shared future of our closest neighbor? The U.S. Ambassador brings a lot of experience and insights to share. What questions do you have for him? Please use the Q&A cards on your table old-school paper and pen. We will collect them and share them with Rita, who will be moderating the discussion. For those joining online, please hit the question button on the right-hand side of your screen at any time during the broadcast. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Before his ambassadorial, that's a word right there, appointment by President Joseph Biden, David L. Cohen served as senior advisor to the CEO at Comcast Corporation. He was previously Senior Executive Vice President at Comcast, where he, held, he led a large complex portfolio, including corporate communications, legal affairs, corporate administration, and Chief Diversity Officer. Before joining Comcast in 2002, the U.S. Ambassador to Canada served as a partner and the chairman of Ballard, Spar, Andrews, and Ingersoll LLP, one of the 100 largest law firms in the country. And for a five-year period, beginning in 1992, the New York native served as chief of staff to the mayor of Philadelphia. My first question, of course, is how do you pick who you root for team-wise when you are a New Yorker working for the mayor of Philadelphia? But I'm sure he will address that later. Mr. Cohen has served on many nonprofit boards. The list is very long, so let me just highlight a few. Chair of the Trustees of the University of Pennsylvania and its Executive Committee, member of the Board of Directors and the Executive Committee of the Greater Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce, Chair of the Philadelphia Theatre Company, member, Board of Directors of the PNC Financial Services Group, and PNC Bank National Association, which clearly tells me that he never sleeps. Joining Mr. Cohen in conversation is the Globe and Mail's senior business writer and columnist, Rita Treicher. She is an award-winning journalist and former Wall Street Journal reporter. Ambassador Cohen, the Canadian Club podium is yours. So thanks very much, Melanie, and thanks um, very much, all of you, for joining us here today. Um, I will tell you that in my recollection, I think the very first invitation I received from a Canadian entity, which was about two months before I was confirmed as U.S. Ambassador, was from the Canadian Club. Um, and... 
So it took a while to get me here, but it wasn't because I was trying to avoid you. Um, it was just the, the perils of scheduling. But I also understand that it's been eight years since the U.S. ambassador has spoken to the Canadian Club, and so I'm really happy to be back as an institution as well. Um, this is my 14th visit to Toronto. If, if Susan Crystal sighed when I said that, um, it's understandable because when I show up, it puts a lot of pressure on my, my people in any city. Um, and that means that I have visited Toronto more than any city in Canada other than Ottawa. And, that, that, and there is a little bit of a competition. It's mostly between Toronto and Montreal as to who, who gets me the most times. But Toronto is pulled ahead by two or three visits at this point. Um, so when I agreed to serve as President Biden's representative to Canada, I wanted very much to make sure that I got out of the Ottawa bubble um, and traveled throughout Canada to meet with Canadians from coast to coast to coast and beyond. Um, as one experienced diplomatic friend advised me, I always need to remember that President Biden appointed me to be the U.S. ambassador to Canada, not the U.S. ambassador to Ottawa. And it's easy to get seduced into just staying in Ottawa. It's a nice city. It's comfortable. It's populated with a lot of people who are, who are like the people I'm used to hanging around. Um, it's very much in my comfort zone. Um, but over the past year and a half, I have traveled, my team tells me, more than 54,000 miles. I've been in Canada long enough. I know I need to translate that into kilometers. So that's 88,000 kilometers um, throughout Canada. My travels have given me the opportunity to attend literally hundreds of meetings and events and see and meet with thousands of people from all walks of life and where they live, in their, in their places of business, in their local hotels, in their local social clubs, in their living rooms, and even in their local hockey arenas. Um, in southern Ontario, by way of example, I visited Windsor to tour the Gordie Howe Bridge and visited sites in, 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 in um, Chatham-Kent and the Niagara region that showcase the Underground Railroad and illustrate the deep roots of our shared history. Um, I have a particular fascination about Harriet Tubman, um, who, of course, um, toward the end of her career um, called Canada Home, but for a big part of her career called Philadelphia Home because of the f presence of Quakers in Philadelphia. And so that's just one example of a shared history between my hometown of Philadelphia and Canada. Um, I've also visited the Toronto Stock Exchange and met with large and small businesses throughout Ontario. I've engaged with community groups and indigenous peoples. Throughout my travels, I've seen countless examples of the shared values and the cross-border friendships that bind us together. Even at this reception, I've run into four or five people who are talking to me about their shared, shared, shared values and relationships that they have between Canada and the United States, including Melanie, just by way of example. So I, it's amazing how close these relationships are on a consistent basis.
one of my top priorities as U.S. Ambassador to Canada, and one of the top priorities of the Biden-Harris administration has been rebuilding the close relationship between the United States and Canada and restoring the trust that used to exist between Canada and the United States. I am pleased to say that the state of our country's relationship is truly excellent. President Biden's extraordinary visit to Canada in March illustrated the strength of the relationship and the closeness of our partnership. In the President's address to Parliament, he spoke about what the future holds for our relationship, and he said, and I'm quoting here, it's a future built on shared prosperity, where Canada and the United States continue to anchor the most competitive, prosperous, and resilient economic region in the world. And in one sentence, that's about as good a definition of what the United States and Canada stand for. Furthermore, in their closing joint statement, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau pledged to work together to deepen our economic integration and create good jobs while catalyzing clean energy. Last year, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, or as we call it, the IRA. The IRA contains the biggest investment in history to curb emissions, promote clean energy technologies, advance environmental justice, and bolster climate adaptation efforts. Importantly, these incentive-laden programs will help to build integrated supply chains and make North America more competitive. The IRA and other programs under the umbrella of the IRA create incredible opportunities for the United States and for Canada and Mexico to, to open new avenues for trade and manufacturing in clean energy and to strengthen regional supply chains, which are the lifeblood of our economies. As President Biden said in Ottawa, the United States chooses to link our future with Canada because we know that we'll find no better partner, no more valuable ally, and no more steady friend. And the closeness of that relationship has definitely been my experience. And one of the great successes of Canada and the United States working together is driven by our country's mutual commitments to principles of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Um, I try and talk about that in every presentation I make. Um, and it's so important when we talk about rebuilding our economies because that rebuilding effort is based on the language which started as U.S. language, but it's now used in Canada all the time, building back better. So I'm a lawyer by training. I can't get away from the fact that words matter. Neither of our countries talk about building back our economy. We talk about building it back better. And building it back better means building it back so that it's more inclusive, it's more embracing, so that everyone benefits, and in particular that we make sure that we don't want leave small and medium-sized enterprises, particularly those owned by women, people of color, indigenous peoples, and other underrepresented groups behind. That's the... So that's the commitment that the United States has. It's, we've made it a passion 
for the United States Embassy and our seven consulates across Canada, but it's also a passion and a commitment for Prime Minister Trudeau and Canada, and I really believe that it's that value, it's that mutual commitment that helps to bind us together and that, quite frankly, makes irrelevant all of the squabbles that we might have around particular trade issues. So I appreciate very much the opportunity to come and speak to this group. Um, I'm sort of looking around this room. I think this is the third time I've spoken in this room. We should start counting that up too. Um, but it's, it is always a pleasure um, to be in Toronto and I am particularly happy that we have finally been able to arrange an appearance for me um, in front of this group. So thanks for the invitation and I look forward to your questions and our conversation. I always know which seat is mine. It's the one with the Diet Coke. <laughs> Although I learned today that if Melanie were up here, there might be two Diet Cokes there, and then I wouldn't know what seat was mine. Okay. Ambassador, thank you for being uh, with us today. I have a lot of questions for you. I'm sure everyone in the audience has questions for you as well. So no one has to be anywhere before 7 o'clock. <laughs> Well, we'll try to get to as many of them as possible. So um, when President Joe Biden visited Canada in March, and as you pointed out, he touted the strength of Canada-US uh, relations. But as you noted, there are squabbles and points of friction. And some of them include things such as dairy, softwood lumber, uh, and Bridges Line 5, and even incentives offered under the Inflation Reduction Act. You yourself was, were quoted as saying that Kenda initially threw a, quote, hissy fit over EV credits. Has the bilateral relationship really improved since the days of President Trump? And are we likely to see the resolution of these trade disputes anytime soon? So, in a sense, the way you phrase that relationship only, almost makes it too easy <laughs> because it's a pretty low bar to improve our relationship from the days of the Trump administration. So I can definitively say yes to that question. <laughs> okay. um, but I, I actually don't think that's a fair standard. I, I think at any, on any objective level, the relationship from a trade perspective and from other perspectives, but I'll limit it to trade and, and the economy is, as I said in my remarks, is excellent. Um, there is no better bilateral relationship for the United States in the world than the relationship that we have with Canada. So I, I, whenever I talk about this and you talk, I mean, every dispute you named I am intimately familiar with. Um, and, I, and I don't mean to belittle them, but I don't think we should bury the lead. Um, and the lead is that in 2022, the United States and Canada enjoyed $3.25 billion Canadian a day in trade across our borders, generating millions of jobs in both countries. Um, and that for the United States, that is our largest trading relationship. For Canada, that is Canada's largest trading relationship by a mile. Um, that relationship is up 20% year over year from 2022 
to 2021, and beyond the, the gross numbers, more than 30 states in the United States enjoy their largest trading relationship with Canada. So you can't do any better than those numbers. They're, I mean, they're simply remarkable. And I, President Biden, when he was here, used the line that I have used, too. I mean, I think our relationship is so close that Canada and the United States, we're like a family. We're, we're not like two countries. We don't treat each other the same way we treat any other country, even our other close allies in the world. We're like a family. But I ask you all to think about your families. Do you agree on everything all the time? Of course not. There are disagreements within the family. And what, what, what signifies the strength of the family relationship is how you deal with those differences. Do you approach them civilly? Do you try and reach compromises? Do you try to work together? Do you not lose sight of the overall value of the family unit and the family relationship? And that's the story of the United States-Canada relationship. We have our differences. Look, the EV, the EV battery dispute is an example. We had a difference. Canada was not happy about the direction of something. My team would prefer that I don't use the word hissy fit again. <laughs> but they were not happy. So what did we do? We met, we talked. Canada did an excellent job making its case. We talked and we solved the problem. That's what the U.S.-Canada relationship is all about. Okay. Uh, on January 5th, President Biden tweeted, let's make 2023 the year of buying American. And so for Canadians, the concept of buying American can feel protectionist. What is your response to that criticism? So um, this, is a, this is a sitting down conversation, but I had the, I had the opportunity the opportunity to give a fairly comprehensive speech on this subject, which included my nine reasons why Buy American, Buy American is not protectionist. So I'm not going to repeat all nine of those reasons for you, um, but I will note, first of all, as I said, just look at the volume and the value of the trade relationship between the United States and Canada. Um, those numbers that I gave you, $3.25 billion a day, largest trade relationship for more than 30 states, um, a growing relationship, they don't sound very protectionist to me. It's not, that would not be the way you would define a protectionist relationship. Um, when you talk about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, it is also not very protectionist because the, there, there, is, there are options available under the IRA under the President's expansion of the Defense Production Act under um, a variety of other programs that were part of that package for Canadian companies to enjoy the benefits of those, of those programs. Um, one of my favorite examples, and it's only one example, um, is a company called Lifecycle. It's a Canadian company um, located in Hampton, um, it's a lithium recycling company. And when I was in Washington for the Select USA conference, which is a commerce department conference on that, I met with that company and they told me that they had just received, pursuant to Inflation Reduction Act funding, 
a $375 million loan commitment from the Department of Energy to enable it to expand its lithium recycling business in Canada and the United States. Um, and there are the, the $250 million in Defense Production Act funding that President Biden has announced. Canada is fully, Canadian companies are fully eligible for those grants because they are truly a North American, it's truly a North, an attempt to strengthen North American supply chains. So I think the overall record, uh, the overall current record of trade, commerce, cooperation between Canada and the United States is the opposite of protectionist. And that may not have been true under the prior administration. It wasn't true under the prior administration. But that, the way the prior administration did business, is not the way this administration is doing business. And I think we embrace Canada as our most important trading partner, our most important ally, as the, pres as the president said in the quote that I read. Um, and, I, and I think that that's important. All that said, I, should have, I shouldn't have ended with this, I should have started with it. I mean, let's understand that by America, by American provisions in federal procurement law, and that's all those, that's all the president was talking about in that tweet, where federal government procurements didn't apply to private sector businesses doing business with other, with other companies in other countries. Let's understand that it is a fairly common element of federal procurement laws and regulations to favor host country companies. Canada has the same provisions. Um, and I'll give you a recent example when it came to when it came to purchase of pandemic supplies um, and pandemic remediation efforts, Canada invoked those by Canada provisions to exclude United States companies from selling personal protective equipment um, and other tools of fighting the pandemic in Canada. And there was a good reason for that, because Canada wanted and needed to stimulate Canadian companies to engage, to invest, and to work hard to provide that equipment. And so they afforded those companies a little bit of protection from American competition. The world didn't hiss and boo and say, oh my God, what is Canada doing? It is just a normal and customary way in unusual circumstances to stimulate your host country's businesses. It's not protectionist. There's a difference between protectionism and economy building in your own country and in your own continent. Okay, I appreciate your transparency. I should let the audience know that your team said that I could ask you anything. I love Americans for this because they mean it when, you, when they say that. I'm gonna pivot and ask you about bank mergers in the United States. So in 2021, President Biden signed an executive order promoting competition in the American economy and asked federal agencies to increase their scrutiny of big bank mergers. And we just saw J.P. Morgan Chase, America's largest bank, pick up assets from First Republic. Of course, there's, there was, uh, that was due to the banking crisis. But TD Bank's proposed acquisition of First Horizon fell apart after considerable delay. 
What should we make of the failure of TD's deal? And are there uh, Canadian banks also likely to face more regulatory risk if they pursue deals in the United States? So this is a place where I have to remind everyone that I'm the U.S. ambassador to Canada. I am, I'm not an economist. I no longer am actively practicing antitrust law and competition policy. Um, um, but I, I, I bring some biases to the table. Um, I, I don't believe that big is bad or big is necessarily bad. I spent my entire career advocating for less um, blunt judgments about combinations and competition policy, and I'm not really going to change that. I don't think Joe Biden was changing that with his statement. I think what he was saying was that he wanted his FTC, FCC, bank regulators to scrutinize combinations that would create large players to make sure that consumer interests would be protected, that, um, that the competitive benefits of those transactions would outweigh the competitive disadvantages of it. Um, and, you know, depending on the administration, the, the scrutiny may be more strict or less strict. That's one of the rhythms of American politics and American government. As somebody who was a senior executive in a very large company that was very active in the merger and acquisition space for 20 years, I've lived through both of those structures of, of places where administrations applied a lot of scrutiny to those deals and places where it was a little, administrations where it was a little easier to get them approved. And what I've learned is that if you can make the case for the consumer benefit of a transaction, it shouldn't matter who the administration is. And I, and I believe that's the right answer. I believe that you have to look at individual transactions on their merits. You have to look at it through the lens of um, whether you're doing something that is good for consumers. Every transaction is not the same. Every industry is not the same. As you said in dealing with the banking industry, um, there's just no doubt about how much bigger banks have become in both Canada and the United States, maybe more in Canada than in the United States, but I think that's happened um, because of the exigencies of the banking industry and looking out for how we're going to best protect the public and the integrity of our, of our banking system. So I, I don't think Canadian companies need to cross the United States off their list for places where they can do deals and acquisitions. I think depending on the administration, you may have to be prepared to make a more compelling case than you might have to make in another administration. And I think that's okay. I think that's the way our competition policy should be handled. Okay, given your previously held roles at Comcast, let me ask you about telecommunications, which is another protected sector here in Canada. Uh, we just had a transformative deal with Rogers acquiring Shaw Communications. That deal has recently closed. 
From the American perspective, should Canada lift the foreign investment restrictions for large telecoms to create more competition? And would U.S. telcos be interested acquirers? So, um, again, I have to go back. <laughs> I have to go back to my line. I'm the U.S. ambassador to Canada. And there's actually a further refinement on that, which is that the conflict of interest rules in State Department and for ambassadors are very, very strict. Um, and I have, I have relatively few restrictions, but commenting on that question, I fear goes a little bit too close to the line because um, of potential. I'm not, trust me, I'm not forecasting anything here because I don't know, I don't have any current relationship with Comcast, but I think it comes too close to the line um, because it arguably could be in Comcast's interest to have a better opportunity to acquire assets in, in Canada than in the United States. So I obviously pay attention to telecom um, in Canada. You can't spend 20 years in the industry and just ignore it when you wake up in the morning. But my primary interaction with telecom, my primary interaction with Rogers and Shaw and Bell in the last 19 months has been as a customer um, and not as a corporate entity or a, or a commentator on that work. And I will say, and your people report this as well, that um, you call the telecom industry protected in Canada. I'm not sure they would agree with that. But clearly, there's a lot of size that has been permitted to develop over time in the telecom industry in Canada. And I will tell you, as a consumer, um, I think the, the service delivered um, in Canada is excellent. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Bell and Rogers customer <laughs> and, and very satisfied with the service that I receive. And, and you can laugh and say that, but that's, that's what competition policy should be all about. Is, is the company, when it gets bigger, is it delivering a quality service to consumers? Um, and if it's not, that's a reason to question whether it makes sense to permit this to occur. So I think my consumer perspective here is relevant to the overall question of competition policy in Canada or in the United States. Okay. I, By the way, I remain a Comcast customer, too. <laughs> say that for the record. Right. I'm a very good customer of the telecom industry. <laughs> Okay, one more question for me before I get to some questions from the audience. Um, let's talk about some geopolitical risks, uh, in particular uh, China's aggressive posture. How concerned should the West be about China and Russia's com uh, complicity, not just uh, on um, issues uh, you know, involving uh, the war in Ukraine, but also uh, including through the BRICS economic alliance? So the short answer to that question is that the democracies in the world, the United States, Canada, should be very concerned about the role of Russia and China in geopolitical affairs. Um, and it, you, can, you can pick your time when you should be more concerned about Russia or more concerned about China. I'd rather not pick or choose. They, are, they both pose significant threats to a rules-based order 
to rules-based free competition. Um, they are they are troublesome players. The war in the war in Ukraine is just an example. It's a horrific example, but it's just an example. The incident that we just had over the weekend with a United States destroyer almost being hit by a Chinese by, by a Chinese ship in the Taiwan Straits. I mean, it is, it is just an example of how scary the world is in which we're functioning. And I think this is a place where the United States and Canada are pretty tied together on their approach, um, particularly to China. Um, uh, Secretary Blinken, I think, has created a very strong and nice um, framing of, our, of the United States policy, which I think Canada basically replicated. And this is not plagiarism or copying someone else's homework. I just think the power of Tony Blinken's framing is attractive. And that is, it's a three-part policy. Invest, and by invest means build your own strengths. Invest in what you can do and what you can do well. Align, work with like-minded countries, like-minded democratic companies, and align our work together. And then compete. Compete against China, compete against Russia, and compete in the broadest possible sense. Because compete is not only see if we can cut into China's share of the global lithium market, but it is also compete and hold China and Russia accountable to rules-based competition. Try and inject elements of, of ESG into global competition. Try and make this not a race to the bottom, but rather a race to the top. Because I believe that there are plenty of buyers, plenty of customers out there that will find attractive doing business to people who are not paying their workers 25 cents an hour. So competing means fighting to impose a rules-based order on global competition. And that, in a nutshell, is the United States approach. And I think it's a pretty good summary of the Canadian approach as well. Okay, we have about seven minutes left, so I'm going to try to get through as many audience questions as possible in that time. Um, I'll try you, and be shorter. <laughs> you mentioned that we share as nations a shared commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do we address the backlash that we see on both sides of the border? Right. So, um, so this is I, I get asked this question every once in a while, and maybe I'm a, in a privileged position. Um, I personally don't see a lot of backlash. Um, there is some, and it is something we have to be conscious of. Um, but as business people, if I can speak to the business people in this room, sometimes we have to be leaders. We have to do the right thing, the right thing for society, the right thing for our companies. So there are a lot of studies now on the importance of diversity and inclusion, on economic performance, one of my favorites is a, is a Citigroup study which concluded that since 2000, the United States economy has lost $16 trillion. The GDP has lost $16 trillion because of discrimination against what we would call African Americans in the United States against blacks. And then if we could eradicate the gaps as a result of that, 
we would generate $5 trillion in additional GDP. So to size that for you, that's like adding the entire economy of Ontario to the United States economy every year. So I have a good friend of mine who happens to be African-American, happens to be a very successful businessman, who said in a panel that I hosted that when you're, when, if you're a business leader, you're confronted with statistics like that, it is business malpractice not to embrace diversity and inclusion. And that's the message we have to get out there. And I, when I talk about diversity and inclusion in, in my own company, when I worked at Comcast, NBC Universal, when I talk about it publicly, I said, it is not a zero-sum game. It does not mean that because you hire a black woman that a white male has lost out on a job. Because diversity and inclusion grows the economy. It grows opportunity. It benefits everyone. There are more jobs, more promotions, more opportunity for men, women, whites, people of color, indigenous peoples, and that goes on the supplier side too. So we have, to, we have to make sure we talk about this in the right way and make sure people realize this is not a win-lose. Embracing diversity and inclusion is not about win-lose, it's about win-win. Okay. Well. Thank you for outlining the collective cost to society uh, for, of systemic discrimination. That's a really important point. Um, another question from the audience on a different topic. Is there any collaborative uh, initiatives between Canada and the U.S. to address the current concerns about the use of AI? So um, the best answer to that question is they're coming. So a, the use of AI is um, obviously a very hot topic in the last few months, maybe. Um, and there is, um, there is a lot of collaborative efforts being talked about um, as to how we would work together to make sure we harness the advantages of AI, um, but also um, make sure we manage the downsides um, of, of AI. It's interesting, I think a part of the, an important part of this discussion will be um, disinformation as well, because AI used in certain ways is a, I think poses a tremendous risk for the spread of, of disinformation. So it's, an, it's another example of the need for collaborative efforts in that space. Okay, <laughs> my son asked the uh, chat GPT to write a Rita Tritcher article. It was terrible, terrible. <laughs> okay, uh, we just have a... Uh, so just you know, I have to do just one quick funny story, which is in the State Department, there's a very formalized evaluation process. It's called the EER process, and you have to write these space-limited and sometimes where many people think that to write a good or a bad EER about somebody, that there are things you have to say and do this in a particular way. So I sort of hate the formality of the process, in case you can't tell. Um, but we had someone in, someone not in, the, not in Mission Canada, but a friend of mine in another embassy around the world, and I will protect, I will protect him, had a 
had a chat GBT write an EER for, for three of the people he was supposed to evaluate. And he said they were 100% unusable. He goes, they were, but they were exactly what the State Department was looking for. Um, so it, it's, no, it's like a caricature. Susan, no, it's a, it was a caricature of what an EER was supposed to be. And in caricature form, the, the EERs were embarrassing, but, which is what tells you something about the limits of AI in that space and in other spaces. Okay, Ambassador, we are out of time. Just really quickly, I understand that you were at the first WNBA game in Canada. I was there too. My son bought me tickets as a Mother's Day present. Are we going to get a WNBA team in Canada? So, so I don't know the answer to that, but I, I had the opportunity to talk about that subject with the commissioner of the WNBA, um, who I know. She was the former CEO of Deloitte, which, is, which was and is Comcast auditing firm. So I met with her as a, as a client. And I don't think I'm disclosing any, any confidential information, but it's obviously something that is of interest to the WNBA. The, if it wasn't of interest beforehand, the unbelievable reaction of the WNBA game in, um, here in Toronto was was, you know, put anyone over the top. The, uh, the arena sold out in six hours, um, which is, as she pointed out to me, better than we do in any arena in the United States. So the enthusiasm was clear. But remember, the WNBA is a business, and um, there, were, there were plenty of people I've talked to who say, well, you know, if they, so if they all have to do is open a franchise, well, they don't just open a franchise. They're interested in selling a franchise. And the going price for a WNBA franchise these days, I mean, no one's quantified it, but it's got to be tens of millions of dollars. So it's going to require some investors. It's going to require, it's going to require the private sector stepping up with interested investors who are prepared to make an investment. But I think when the window opens, my bet is that there will be, um, there will be invest Canadian investors who are interested in bringing a WNBA team to Canada, and I think, I think it'll be great for the league and it'll be great for Canada. All right. Great. Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> answer the call. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you so everyone. much. <laughs> okay. Mr. Ambassador, on behalf of the Canadian Club members and guests, I want to thank you for your inspirational and very honest message and answers, and uh, all about the hopeful future of the U.S.-Canadian relationship. Uh, we appreciate the details you shared. We're excited to see the continuing positive results of what it means to build back better together. We wish you continued success in your ambassadorial whew, role. And to you, Rita, Thank you. We really appreciate your masterful f facilitation of our conversation today. Before we conclude, oh, just a quick few highlights for our upcoming in-person events. 
Thursday, June 8th, that's right, this week, busy week, our club features a panel that will explore our energy future, including indigenous perspectives on how to leverage our leadership role in the sector. And next Tuesday, the 13th, we welcome the CEO of Pure Later, John Ferguson. Please visit CanadianClub.org not the other one, or you'll get the liquor, uh, to learn more about your upcoming events and to purchase your tickets. I'd like to offer another round of sincere thanks and appreciation to, to today's event sponsor, Christine and TD. Thank you very much. Thank you all for joining today. Have a wonderful rest of your day and your week. Take care.